Last week we began this series in Pentecost. We go back 33 years to the birth of Jesus or the announcement of it. Talk about the shepherds. So I guess you might say it's Christmas in May, uh, and yet we're not really going to um, necessarily talk a lot of Christmas today, but rather the way in which God speaks to these shepherds. The argument is this, he, the way he moves on the shepherds, what he affects in them is exactly what he does in us. No matter where you are, no matter how long you've known him, there is a propensity in every one of us to walk away, to be at a distance, to not sense his presence. And when we get in that condition, He always comes to us in the same way, and He always does for us the same thing. And the reactions that we have could be varied, but they'll always be the same reaction if we understand what it is He's telling us. So let's take a look at it. Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone round them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and a baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. I've listened to this message over 20 times. It's always fresh. Until two years ago, Brennan Manning was the most heavily sought-after speaker for Young Life International. And he was a Franciscan priest. He gets an invitation from a singles group in Wisconsin. They're having a singles conference over a weekend, and they call it the Soaring Singles. And they ask him to come and speak. At first, he thinks to himself, what a lightweight weekend. I mean, all they want me to do is go up there and talk about Jesus a little bit so they can kissy face, huggy bear. But he said, I'm sort of into a light weekend. I could use one of those. And so he goes. And after he speaks the first time, he says the hunger and the intensity of these 20 to 30-year-olds is phenomenal. 
Saturday night, he's speaking. The room is full. He begins to speak about Jesus' words to his disciples days before he went to the cross when he said to them, My little children, I will not leave you as orphans. And suddenly there's a 26-year-old Cambodian guy who screams and rushes outside. And all of the kids are saying, or young men and women are saying to Brennan, what happened? And he said, I don't know what happened, but you better go get him. It's 55 below zero with wind chill. He'll die if he's not back here in 15 seconds. Within about 10 seconds, the man comes back and is standing side by side with Brennan. He said, may I say something? Manning says, please. The man said, none of you know me here. Twelve years ago, in my village in Cambodia, my father got news that the Khmer Rouge were coming. That's a terrorist organization. They were coming toward my village. So my father got me up in the middle of the night We made our way down to the ocean through the woods and there he put me on an open raft and he pushed me out into the sea. It must have been a miracle because in a few hours some Korean fishermen picked me up. I make my way to this country. Two years ago I graduated from Harvard Business School with an MBA. I've been living in Chicago for the past two years. I live in an apartment by myself. I have no friends. I don't really know anybody. And so I see this ad in the paper that says a singles conference not far up in Wisconsin. And so I come. And I think to myself, maybe I'll make a friend. And then you, Brennan, begin to talk about Jesus. I don't know your Jesus. I heard that he was a wise man. But I don't really know him. But then you quoted the words that he said, my little children, I'll not leave you orphans. And suddenly he's in my face. I've lived like an orphan in your country for 12 years. But suddenly this Jesus is in my face. It's like an earthquake in my spirit. I know Him. I've come to know Him. I sense His presence. He's here. So let me ask you something. Is that where you find Jesus? In Wisconsin? At a singles retreat? Last week after 9.30, a woman who I have known for almost two decades was back at Hebron. She came through the door and I greeted her and I said, how are you? And she looked away and said, I don't feel anything anymore. I don't feel his presence. Should I go tell her to go to Wisconsin? Should I tell her to go to a different service? Should I tell her to go to another church? 
You see, what happened to that Cambodian guy that night was that he was moved by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God has one single mode of operation, one single purpose, and that's to put us face to face with Jesus. There in that room of single people, Jesus came to that one Cambodian guy and redirected his attention from himself and his loss to his gain. I mean, think about it. Jesus had been preparing that man for that Saturday night all his life. You say, how? He's born in Cambodia. When he's 14, Pol Pot comes to power and begins to exterminate people all over that nation. This guy's father hears Pol Pot's coming to his village, puts his son on a raft, and sends him out into the Gulf of Thailand. And there Jesus has some South Korean fishermen pick him up. Within months, he's here in this country. He has no family. Over those 12 years, he had heard nothing from his mother and father and two sisters. He even went back to Cambodia to look for them, and nobody had ever heard of them. He goes to Harvard, comes to Chicago. There in his apartment, he reads an ad in the newspaper for the Soaring Singles Retreat. And so he goes up there looking for a friend. And who is speaking but a Franciscan priest who had left the ministry, become a drunk in the gutter, came back to speak of grace, And there, Brennan Manning says the words of Jesus, My little children, I will not leave you as an orphan. And he hears it. Not just with his ears, but with his heart. He hears it, and he's moved. He runs outside, then he comes back in within minutes, stands side by side with Brennan Manning, and tells everybody in that room, that Jesus had come to him and said, you're not an orphan. You're accepted. You're mine. Suddenly he feels something he's never felt before. Suddenly he knows something he's never known before. Suddenly his feelings and his knowledge converge to move him. So last week we're in the city of Jerusalem. It's 33 years later. 120 disciples are gathered in a room. They begin to praise God and the Holy Spirit falls in power upon them. And what happens? 3,000 people are moved by the Spirit of God to follow Christ. Today we're six miles from Jerusalem. We're out in the fields around Bethlehem where shepherds are watching over flocks that are not their own. 
and the Lord shows up and he moves a group of shepherds to leave their flock and go find Christ. You know, when you dig into that text, this text, you discover that the Holy Spirit does the same thing in the Cambodian guy as he does in the shepherds, as he did in those people at Jerusalem. The same three things happen to them that happens to us. Whenever Jesus shows up, whenever he meets us where we are, three things happen. So let's dig in. First of all, notice it always begins with the in. Look at verse 8. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. In 1888, Rudyard Kipling coined this expression, the world's oldest profession, and all of us know what he's talking about. Everybody knows what that means, the world's oldest profession. And yet the Bible disagrees. It's not prostitution. The world's oldest profession is shepherding. Genesis chapter 4 says this, Now Abel was a keeper of sheep. Genesis 4 says he keeps sheep. He offers sheep in sacrifice for his sin. You know, in all the Bible... Whenever Abel is mentioned, it's always positive. He's a shepherd who keeps sheep, offers sheep. It's always positive, but you know something? It doesn't last very long. Forty-three chapters later, Pharaoh asked Joseph, what do your brothers do? Remember, they had come down to Egypt after Joseph had revealed himself. What do your, what do your brothers do? And Joseph said to Pharaoh, your servants, my brothers, tend sheep like their fathers did. Now, in the eyes of the Egyptians, shepherds were despised. Egyptians were city dwellers. Shepherds lived in the fields. Egyptians were cultured and educated. Shepherds weren't. Egyptians placed a high value on hygiene, and shepherds didn't. Egyptians prided themselves on their morality and their ability not to tell lies. Shepherds didn't. And yet it's amazing. 400 years later, God calls a shepherd to deliver his people out of Egypt. He takes a man who's been raised in a palace in Egypt, who's got, become a shepherd in the wilderness, a man who goes from the palace in Egypt to a desert place around Horeb to lead his people out of bondage. And he's not alone. I mean, think of all of the shepherds we know about in the Bible. There's Abel, and there's Job. There's Laban, and there's Jacob. There's Job, and there's David. You know what the Bible says about Job? He had 14,000 sheep. 
You know what else the Bible says? When Solomon dedicated the temple in Jerusalem, he and all of the people of Jerusalem sacrificed 120,000 sheep. There are shepherds and sheep all over the Bible. And yet, whether you're Egyptian or an Israelite, shepherds were held in low esteem. Shepherds were considered incompetent. They were considered untrustworthy. According to the Mishnah, which is the oral tradition of Israel, if you knew that a shepherd had fallen into a pit, you were obligated not to get him out. There are few occupations in all of the Bible that are less valued than the occupation of a shepherd. And yet when the Lord announces His deliverance in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, who does He come to first? He comes to shepherds. Thirteen years ago, and the AP ran a story about a man by the name of Michael Braithwaite. He lives in... Putney, Kentucky. For 10 years, he's had an adult bookstore. For 10 years, his business is booming. He sells all kinds of novelties. (laughs) One night, he happens to find himself in a prayer meeting where he's converted. The next day, he goes and he sets fire to $10,000 worth of adult stuff. He paints the walls of his shop white. He, He replaces all that was on the shelves with Bibles and Christian books. And within two weeks, his sales top any other period of time when he was running the bookstore or the adult novelty shop. And so the AP reporter finds out about this and interviews him and asks this question, how is this possible? How is it possible to go from adult wares to Bibles and make the same amount of money? Listen to what Michael said. Because the Lord specializes in reaching people that are unreachable. You know, in the society in which Jesus was born, there was nobody more unreachable than shepherds. Someone always says, said, said, grace always runs downhill. It does. Grace always runs downhill. And you know, that's the first thing I would say to that woman last week. I said, you don't feel anything. You don't sense his presence. I got good news for you. Grace always runs downhill. You're in a great spot to have the Lord Jesus come and do a work in you. Second, notice not only the end, notice the up. Look at verse 13. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God. Now, two weeks ago, we defined the word host. And one of the definitions, the second definition, is a mighty multitude, usually referring to an army. So what 
Luke is saying is suddenly one angel is joined by a multitude of multitudes of angels. So think of this. When God comes to Moses in Midian, in that desert, in that burning bush, it's one angel that speaks to him. But here, in these fields around Bethlehem, it's not only one angel who comes, but a whole army of angels announcing peace. And what do they do? They look up. You say, where is that in the text? It isn't specifically said, but it's obvious. Their fear evaporates. Their sense of guilt is overshadowed by grace. Their sense of unworthiness is dissolved into the full embrace of God's grace, and they're caught up in the glory. I love the definition Paul Tillich gives of faith. It's the willingness to accept being accepted. Think of that. Faith is the willingness to accept being accepted. These shepherds weren't accepted by anybody. But now the angels are saying, the Lord accepts you. And guess what they do? They accept the acceptance. Now I want you to remember that they're not looking for angels. They're tending these flocks at night. That's when those sheep would be stolen. They're awake and alert. When Moses is tending his father-in-law's sheep in the wilderness for 40 years, he's not looking for a burning bush, but he sees one. They're simply doing their jobs. They're watching somebody else's sheep. And suddenly when God shows up, they look up. God shows up and their eyes are lifted from their own misery, their own selves to Him. Suddenly they recognize He accepts them. Now one other fact. Did you know those sheep that were around Bethlehem? Those sheep were meant for temple sacrifice. According again to the oral tradition of Israel, the Mishnah, any sheep found within a six-mile radius of Jerusalem, and that's Bethlehem, you can assume that that sheep or whatever animal it was was intended for sacrifice, for sin. So these shepherds are watching sacrificial animals. So what does the angel say? I bring you good news of a great joy, for born this day in the city of David is a Savior. Meaning what? Another sacrifice. There is a sacrifice that God will make for you. And for you. And for even for shepherds. You know, it's exactly the same announcement that the angel makes to Moses. Except when he talks to Moses, what he's saying, and we know this from the rest of the story, is it will be the firstborn of Egypt who will die for sin. And it will be substitutionary sheep who will die for the sins of God's people. 
But here the angel is saying, it's not going to be the firstborn of Egypt. It's going to be the firstborn of heaven. It'll be the firstborn son of God. God himself will do it. Now look at the pattern. God breaks in to our darkness. God comes to us. He turns our darkness to light. He takes the eyes of His chosen and puts them not on them, but on Him. And then as a result, one other thing happens. There's the in, there's the up. You're caught up in His glory. And then third, there's always the out. Look at verse 15. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened. Eugene Peterson in the message, which is the paraphrase of the New Testament that he did, said when the angel speaks these words to the shepherds, really what he's saying is God's moved into the neighborhood. And so what do the shepherds do? He's in our neighborhood. Let's go see. They determined to leave the sheep to go to the lamb. Will they stay in the field? Or will they go to Bethlehem? They've got a choice to make. They've got a choice to make. Will they leave the sheep? Will they suffer the consequences of leaving the sheep? Or will they stay? You know what determines their decision to go? The goodness of the good news. Look what they do. They hurry, Luke says. This is one of the toughest verbs in all of Luke's gospel. Leon Morris, the famous... Australian Bible commentator of the last century said it's very difficult to render this verb in English, but let me give you some translations that are most apt. They say to each other, come on, let's go. They say, let's roll. They abandon their sheep to tell of a Savior. They are willing to tell all that they've heard. And guess what? It's believed. Their testimony wasn't worth anything in the city. The testimony of shepherds was never valued. They were liars. But here in a stable in Bethlehem, they are accepted and their message is accepted. Why? Because those who were in the stable in Bethlehem were just like them. They were the low. They were the humble. They had been moved too. They'd experienced the in, the up, and the out. Mary and Joseph had left everything, just like the shepherds. And then there's one last thing. What do, you get at, what do you make of the swaddling clause? I mean, when you have a baby, Tiffany, when you have a baby, is that on your list? 
Yeah, it is. Whoa. I mean, you got diapers, you got A&D ointment, <laughs> you got wipes, but what about swaddling cloths? What in the world is that? You know, when I was in high school, I asked my minister, what were swaddling cloths? And he said, oh, they're burial cloths. He said, in antiquity, I don't know if he used that word, maybe in the old days, they took these strips of cotton and they ripped them and they would use that to diaper the baby. But interestingly, they used the same when they buried somebody. And Jesus was born to die. It all made sense. And he was right. Jesus did born, was born to die, but he was wrong about the swaddling clause. He wasn't alone in believing that. That is a view, but it's wrong. You know how we learn about swaddling clause? Ezekiel chapter 16. Listen to what the Lord says to his people who have abandoned him. God's people who've abandoned him. God says this in Ezekiel 16. On the day that you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling cloths. In other words, You were as good as dead. But I rescued you. You were nobody. But I made you somebody. Have you heard the adage, how odd of God to choose the Jews? (laughs) That's what God's saying to His people. If it weren't for me, you would be nothing. When you were born, your cord wasn't cut. You weren't washed. You weren't rubbed in salt. And you weren't wrapped in swaddling cloths. When a Jewish baby was born legitimately to a father and mother, a husband and wife, as soon as the baby was out of the woman's body, the cord was cut, the baby's body was washed, Finely ground salt powder was sprinkled on the baby's skin. And then that baby was wrapped in strips of cloth called swaddling cloths. Now, why does Dr. Luke say that Jesus was wrapped in swaddling cloths? Because he knows what people have said about Jesus. He's illegitimate. And what's Luke saying? No, he wasn't. And the swaddling claws prove it. But there's more to it than that. When they wrapped a baby in swaddling claws, they wrapped him, him or her from the outside. The claws would go all the way around the arms and legs. He, he or she would look like a mummy. The claws would be t- tightly wrapped around the body so that the body couldn't move. Why? so that the body would stay clean and free of injury. Now think of the restrictions those claws would have on that baby. You say, who cares? I mean, who cares if the baby can't move? I do. More importantly, Luke does. You see what Luke's telling us? When Jesus was born... He was born restricted. 
He not only came into the womb of a woman and into a manger, his body was wrapped in swaddling cloths. He gave up all of his freedom. Why? So that you and I might be set free. He was bound so that we might be free to move. Do you see this? At the beginning of his life, he couldn't move. At the end of his life, he couldn't move on the cross. Why? So that you and I would be set free from our bondage. You and I would be able to move in step with him. His movements were restricted so that you and I could be set free, just like that Cambodian guy, just like those people on the day of Pentecost, just like that adult bookstore owner, just like those shepherds who could return to their fields and let loose. You see, when that woman said to me last week, I don't feel it, I don't sense his presence. That's nothing new. One of the things I said to her is, so do I many times. You do? That helps. There's no surprise there. How many here sometimes don't feel it? How many here sometimes don't sense His presence? We all do. That's how the shepherds felt. That's how Moses felt. Moses had been raised in Egypt. For 40 years he was there. Now for 40 years he's been with the sheep. Don't you think he wonders what's it all about, Alfie? That's how every one of us feels from time to time. When we forget to remember how much he loves us. When you know what He's done for you. When you know that He's come to you time and time again and said to you, I accept you. When you know how precious you are to Him. When He comes to you and drives into you and you get your eyes off yourself, you gaze into His face. It always moves you. It always moves you. Jesus would say to us, never judge me based on the cold shallowness of your own love. You judge me properly. I was bound so that you might be free. Think about that. Amen.